Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you for your word. And I pray, Lord, again tonight, I just cry out in desperation because, Father, we know that without you, this would just be a meeting of, of reading a meaningless book. But, Father God, it's the living, breathing word of God. We desire that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher tonight. Father, just pray that right now that my words would not be mine, but they'd be yours. Lord, that each heart here would be prepared to hear from you tonight. Just touch us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. By way of quick review, last week we looked, at the first, we looked at the last part of Mark chapter 11, and then we looked at the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 12. And we saw how men came, different religious men came, and they questioned Jesus Christ. And they questioned Him. First of all, they came and they asked Him, by what authority? And that was actually the second thing that they did. First thing they did is that we see the Lord cursing the fig tree and we see Him cleansing the temple. But then after that happened, the people came to Him and asked Him, by what authority did you cleanse the temple? Who do you think you are coming into the temple and turning over the tables? In Mark eleven seventeen, just right back one chapter, it says this. Then they taught them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? The Lord went into this place that had become a cash cow for the religious people of the day. What they did was they would fleece people by selling them the sacrificial animals and by changing money in the temple, and the Lord was grieved by it. And He came into the temple and He turned over the tables. And a lot of churches today, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, do the very same thing. They've turned the house of God into a den of thieves. Instead of it being a place of worship and a place of growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, it's become a place where people get rich. Then Jesus returned their question when they said, by what authority? He asked them, the baptism of John, is it from heaven or is it from men? And the reason he asked them that is that John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He's the one that came before Jesus. And he asked them, where did that come from? And you know what? These men didn't, didn't have an answer because it says in 11 verses 32 and 33, it says, but if we say from men, they feared the people, for all the people counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered to Jesus and said, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You know, when Jesus shares a truth with us, He's not going to share us more truth till we understand the truth that's already been shared. And these guys did not receive John the Baptist, so they would not receive Jesus Christ. Then He went on and He shared a parable that we looked at last week, the parable of the vineyard owner. This vineyard owner planted the, the, the vines in the ground that, that they would produce grapes. He dug a place for a wine vat, he built a tower, and then he leased it to these vine dressers. And at harvest time, the vineyard owner sent his servants to receive some of the fruit. So he's done all the work, he's done this, and it says, for my study, that it takes about five years before a vineyard begins to produce fruit. So he does all the work for five years, and he turns the vineyard over to these men who simply need to go out and collect the grapes. And then he wants them to give him back a percentage of all the fruit that is produced. But we saw from the, from the parable that the first one he sent, they beat him and sent him back. The next one he, that they sent, he threw rocks at. And finally they began to kill each of the servants that he sent. And the Lord was speaking to the Jews and telling them that this is what you've done to my prophets. You've beat some, you've mocked some, and you've even killed some. And finally the vineyard owner said, I'll send my son, surely they'll respect my son. The son, again, being a picture of Jesus Christ. And when they sent the son back, what did they do? They said, you know what? If we kill the son, then the inheritance of this vineyard will be ours and it will belong to us. Everything here will be ours. So they put him to death and it says, you killed the son and you threw him outside the city gate. That was a prophetic truth of exactly what would happen to Jesus Christ when he came. So we, we go through all of that and when it ended, we see that the Lord rebuked them. Look at verses 9 through 12. Here's what it says. Therefore, will the owner of the vineyard do when, when, 
He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him, and they went away. They come and they question Jesus. They come and they test Jesus. And you know what? If we come to the Lord seeking to know wisdom and truth, the Bible says that he'll give it to us. But if we come to the Lord testing Him, thinking that we're self-righteous and pious and we have the answers and we're trying to trip up Almighty God, we're going to go away rebuked and empty. And that's what's happening to each of these groups. So we saw the, the chief elders and the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, tonight we're going to look at several more people who come and try to trap Jesus Christ. They're going to come and try to ensnare Him with their words. They're thinking that they have answers. Let's take a look, beginning in verse 13. And we're going to see several different types of questions brought to the Lord. Here's the first one. Then they sent to Him. Now, the the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests had all been rejected. So now it says they sent to Him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch Him in His words. Again, they don't come to Jesus seeking wisdom. They come to Jesus seeking to make accusations. A lot of people look at the church today and look at Christians today, and they look to make accusations against Jesus Christ. They'll say things like, well, the, you know, the church has done so many wicked and violent, perverse things. And they look to make accusations not to seek wisdom from God. Well, that's exactly what these men did. Now, let me describe these two groups of men to you really quick. The Pharisees, as we've talked about before, these were extreme legalists who had placed religious tradition above the Word of God. They were sticklers for every little Jewish tradition. Remember we talked about the way they would wash their hands and the way they would do every little thing. And they were, so, they were such sticklers for tradition, but at the same time, they were missing the Messiah. The Herodians were more of a political party. And the Pharisees were what you would call real conservative people. The Herodians, you couldn't find any more, anybody more liberal than these guys. These guys were followers of Herod the Great. And they were extreme liberals. They believed that the Jews should fall in line and serve Rome. Where the Pharisees were the exact opposite. They thought that the Romans should be overthrown. But yet, look at the kind of people that come together to attack Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting? You know, these people are they're total enemies, but when it comes to Jesus, they're all on the same side. You know, it's amazing when you see people on TV that will attack Christianity. You know, you'll have, you'll have New Age movement, and you'll have Hindus, and you'll have Buddhists, and you'll have the homosexuals, and you have, you know, you'll have every band in the world, and they'll all come together to get against Jesus when they're diversely opposed to one another. It's amazing to me. So these liberals come with the Pharisees seeking to ask a political question against the Lord, to seek a political answer, because they're a group of politicians. So here's what they come. They come and ask a political question. And here's what they asked the Lord in verse 14. When they had come, they said to Him, Teacher, we know that you are true. Do you think they're sincere? Do you think they're sincere? The answer is no. Teacher, we know that you are true. And care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Now, you know what's awesome to me about this? They come to Jesus under a pretense that they wanted Him to resolve a question or a great concern that they had. And when they, act, they say, we, we know that you are true and care about no one, what do they mean by that? Do you think they're ripping the Lord saying He cares about no one? What they're saying is, you teach the truth without compromise and without concern for the opinions of men. You know what I wrote down in my notes? I wrote, Lord, may we be the same way. You know, they taught the truth and weren't worried about what men thought. Jesus Christ was concerned with one thing, the will of His Father. He didn't care. He wasn't trying to win a popularity contest. He wasn't looking to be elected king. And so often today, people will water down the truth because they're afraid of the impact it will have and what men will think of them. 
You know, why, why are we so shy about our faith? Why do we tell people about the love of God more? Because we're concerned about what men think. And while these men's words were true, their motives were not. You know, the Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. It's very easy to play the role of a Christian. It's very easy to speak in Christianese and stick a dove on the back of your car and wear a Christian t-shirt and put a cross around your neck and get a WWJD bracelet. And, you know, you can do those kinds of things and you can walk around and say that you're a Christian, but the Lord knows our heart. And it's the heart that matters. It's not what we say that we are. It's who we truly are with the Lord. Now look at the question that they ask. Again, they be, they're asking this question because they believe that they will trip up the Lord. They believe that no matter what answer He gives, He's going to alienate some people and He's going to have problems. So they're only looking to cause problems for Jesus Christ. Now look what it says at the end of verse 14. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, there were those among the Pharisees, the zealots, who, were, who had zeal for, for you know, Judaism, who believed that if they paid taxes to Rome, because Caesar proclaimed himself in a way to be a god, that it was blasphemous. They said, if we pay taxes to Caesar, then we're blasphemers, and we're almost acknowledging that he truly is a god, so we're not going to give anything to the government. Now, on the opposite extreme, you have the Herodians, who are followers of King Herod, who believe that they should pay taxes. And so, either way, half of this group is going to go after Jesus Christ, no matter what his answer. And that's the reason they've come together, saying, well, if he says one thing, you guys go after him. If he says the other, we'll go after him. And either way, we're going to get Jesus. Well, you know what? They're not messing with the man. It's the creator of the universe. Amen? And you come against Almighty God, you know, I don't care how smart you think you are. You know, it amazes me. Doesn't it blow your mind when scientists get all arrogant? You know, well, we've just discovered a new, you know, this newest galaxy. You know, did you know the Lord spoke that into existence, okay? You know, wow, that's pretty amazing. You know, we got a satellite. You know, the Lord hung a lot of satellites in the sky, amen? He put the earth a perfect distance from the sun that we would neither freeze to death nor fry to death, amen? And aren't you glad? That's our God. He put everything in the perfect spot, but scientists will get all puffed up because they made a new discovery. So what? You know what, what? Here's the discovery you need to make. Jesus Christ is God. That's the discovery. Amen? You need to fall on your face and repent and accept it and say, Lord, I need you. That's the ultimate discovery. Well, these men come and they're pious and we're going to get this Jesus. Shall we pay or not, it says. Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he acknowledged their, their hypocrisy. He, but he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them. Now, do you know this, that the Lord always knows our heart? Again, if he said yes he would have trouble with the Jews. If he said no, he would have trouble with the Herodians and ultimately trouble with the government and the government may go after him. So either way, they thought they had the Lord. But look what happens. They were, they were not concerned about the moral implications, but look what happens. He knew their heart. He saw their hypocrisy. They were not seeking to gain wisdom. So here's what he says to them. Why do you test me? You know, I love that. That the Lord cuts right to the heart. You know, a lot of times we want to get real flowery about the Word of God, right? You know, we want, to, we want to dial it down and water it down and, you know, kind of sneak it in so people... You know, the Lord never snuck it in. You ever, you ever notice that? Jesus never snuck in the Gospel. He never, you know, had a 12-point program and, and point 12 is, oh, by the way, you need to get saved. He didn't do that. He didn't talk about the 60 keys to joy or any of that other stuff. He talked about the fact that repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when men came to him and they were hypocrites, he looked, right in the, looked at them in the face. He didn't play games. He said, why are you coming to test me? What is it you really want? I know your heart. I know your motives. We cannot fool God. And their motive was not to gain wisdom. 
either in the eyes of the people or under the judgment of Rome. They were totally seeking to trip up the Lord. Why do you test me? Jesus saw through their hypocrisy. You know that word hypocrite? It's an interesting word. The word hypocrite means a mask wearer. You know, in those days when they did dramas and plays, the people had to sit, you know, they didn't have amplification like we have today. And they would sit in a, in a, if you were far away from the actors, they had these huge masks that they would hold up and put in front of their face so you could see if they were happy or if they were sad. And hypocrisy is that we claim to be something else. We're a mask wearer. We're pretending to be something that we really are not on the inside. I've told many of you that along with being a pastor, I have a full-time job. And I go out and call on customers. And invariably, since I pray for opportunities to share my faith, virtually every day I get that opportunity. And it's amazing to me when people find out that I'm a pastor, how their vocabulary changes. It's amazing to me how the people that, you know, cussing and all that, and blah, blah, and I'll just say, and I'll ask them a question, we'll start talking about the Lord. Uh, you know, they put on the Christian face, I call it, right? And then, oh, you're a pastor? <laughs> I'm a Christian too, you know? Yeah, I'm in a crib. Praise the Lord, right? I mean, all of a sudden their vocabulary goes from four letter words to praise you, Jesus. That's hypocrisy. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. He said, You guys are hypocrites. He saw their hypocrisy. He said, Why do you test me? You know what? We don't need to test Jesus. We need to test the Word of God. We can test the Word of God, and it's proven to be true. Amen? It's 100% true. All these people that try to tell you, well, the Bible's full of... Con Show me one contradiction in the Bible. I'll sit here till the cows come home. There are no contradictions in the Bible. Amen? There are contradictions in men. There are no contradictions in the Word of God. This is... I'll say, uh, you guys have heard it 100 times. Here's 101. 66 books written by 40 authors on three continents and three languages over 1,500 years with one central theme and no contradictions. And how's that possible? Because God wrote it. Amen? And we're looking for philosophy. And we're trying to find the answers from the world. And people are coming and trying to test Jesus Christ. They should have been on their face repenting. They should have been on their face and crying out in desperation like the blind man that we saw a few chapters ago. When Jesus went by, he said, Son of David, have mercy on me. Instead of testing God, well, should we pay taxes or not? Well, watch this, we're going to get him either way. And that's what these guys are doing. So they test the Lord. And look what the Lord says to him. I love this. Bring me a denarius that I may see it. Now what is a denarius? A denarius is a Roman coin which was equal to a day's wages of a common laborer. You know, I see a couple things here right off the bat. Do you notice that Jesus has to ask somebody to bring him a coin? You know what that means? He didn't have any. Jesus didn't have any money. You know what? I like that. Amen? You know, the world says it's all about making money. The Lord said, oh, pay taxes? Uh, who's got a coin? Somebody bring me one because I don't have one. And they bring a coin to the creator of the universe. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think that the apostles ever went without any food? You think they ever went without? The answer is no. God pr promised to provide for them, and He promises to provide for you. You may not walk around with a bunch of money in your pockets, but the reality is that God is still in control, and God promises to provide. So He says, "Bring to me a denarius. Bring it." And they bring the coin to Him. It says in verse thirty or sixteen. Excuse me. So they brought it, and He said to them, "Whose image and inscription is this?" So no doubt He's holding it up. And I did a little research on a denarius. I, I had somebody at work, they had a sales contest. It was pretty cool that he gave me this. It's not a denarius, but he gave me a coin from first century Rome. 
it was a sales contest, and he, and he gave me a bunch of other, some money and stuff, but he said, hey, I saw this in this collectible place, and I thought this, you'd really love this. You, know, you, you never know who was carrying this thing around. You know, he thought, well, maybe the Lord, was, well, the Lord didn't have any money, so he wasn't carrying it around. But he gives me the coin, and I'm thinking, man, this is pretty cool. And you know what? On there, it always deified whoever was in charge at the time. And they deified on the denarius Caesar. He was seated on a throne. He was wearing a crown, clothed as a high priest, and right underneath the coin, it said, chief priest. So when people were buying stuff, it was saying and acknowledging, in a sense, that Caesar was a god. And so the Lord said, bring me the money. Let me see who's on there. He said, bring in the money. He takes a look at it, and he holds it up and says, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, it's Caesar's. Now, look what the Lord says, and I love his answer. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now remember, both of these groups are waiting for his answer. One of them's going to pounce, right? Oh, don't pay taxes? Well, we're both in the government, and you're a rebellion, and we're going to come. Pay taxes? What are you talking about? You know, you're, then you're saying Caesar's God? They're both ready, and he looks at them and he says, You give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and you give to God what is God's. They're both kind of looking. Well, what is that? Well, whose answer is that? You know, and you know what is awesome to me is that the coins and the money give it to Caesar because who cares? It's all chaff. Amen. When I stand before God, I'm not bringing my bank account or my 401k or my Charles Schwab account. Or, and you know what? The way it's, the market's been going, there's not much in there anyway, right? But I'm not bringing any of that with me. Nothing's going with me. The only thing that's going with me is the spirit that God gave me and people. I'm taking no money, but I can take people with me. And what I love about it is he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. So the coins were made in the image of Caesar, but what was made in the image of God? What's the answer? Everybody's sitting in this room. So he says, give unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So give them, you give Caesar the money, I want you. You give Caesar the money, I want you. I want you to serve me. I want you to follow me. I don't want the money. I don't care about the money. You give it away. I want you. I love that analogy and that story of a man who, when the offering plate was coming by, said, man, I just want to put myself in the offering plate. I don't want to write a check. I just want to sit me in there. I want to give myself to the Lord. And you know what? That's what the Lord's saying. You know what? What's made in the image of Caesar, you give to Caesar. But what's been made in the image of God, you give that to God. You've been made in the image of Almighty God. And isn't that awesome? Amen? You guys were not evolved from monkeys. If that's a new story to you, let me just break it to you. That's not where you came from. Lightning didn't hit a puddle, you know, and an amoeba started growing, and then it, it grew into an organism that scratched its freckle on its arm and got a wing and started flying around. Now it's you. That didn't happen. And yet we teach that in our schools like it's a fact. Amen? And you know what? That's not what happened. God, because of His desire to have fellowship, created you in His image to have a relationship with you. And then man, because man is wicked and simple, chose to sin and was separated from Almighty God, but yet out of His love for us, He didn't leave us there. Instead, He sent His Son to come and suffer and die and rebridge the gap between God and man. And there's only one bridge, and that bridge is Jesus Christ. Most of you guys know I'm, a, I'm an evangelist at heart. I'm always going to take every opportunity to preach Jesus. And it says, the coins again were made in that image, and as Christians, we are, to, we are to do a couple of things I see in this text. We as Christians are to obey the law. Amen? 
I hear Christians right now talking about, well, we're not supposed to pay our taxes. It's not really a law. Render unto Caesars what is Caesars. Pay your taxes. Amen? Is that your God anyway? Just give it away. It's okay. Pay your taxes. Pray for all those who are in authority over you. It says in Romans 13. We are, but as Christians, we are to obey and honor God above all else. We bear His image. We should tell people about His name. We should not be ashamed of Him. And look at their reaction. And they marveled at Him. You know, I love the verse. It says in First Samuel that the foolishness, it says in Matthew, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. There's no such thing as God being foolish because God can't be foolish because God's perfect. Amen? But you know what? The foolishness, if there were foolishness of God, it's greater than the wisest thing that a man ever thought about doing. And here these men are, they come attacking the Lord and they walk away going, oh, and they marveled, right? Astonished. Walked away speechless. You know what? When you come before Almighty God to test Him, that's how you're going to leave. Just as Satan had when he tempted Jesus, the Pharisees and the Herodians walked away amazed and empty-handed. And it's not enough to marvel and be amazed. We must come to a place of repentance and brokenness. And these people didn't do it. They just walked away empty-handed. So we're going to go from a question, a political question about the taxes. Now we're going to go to a doctrinal question about the resurrection. Now we leave, the Pharisees leave, and here comes another group. Oh, you Pharisees, give us a shot. Now the Sadducees, who are the next group we're going to see, look at verse uh, 18, then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying. Now the Sadducees truly were sad, you see, right? They were sad. And the Sadducees were the dire enemies of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees were the legalists who believed in every, in every tradition above and beyond the word of the Old Testament. And the Sadducees didn't believe in a lot of the Bible. The Sadducees didn't believe in anything miraculous. The Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And so the Sadducees saw the Pharisees and, and saw that the Pharisees had failed. And no doubt the Sadducees came up and thought, okay, you know what we're going to do here? We're going to get this Jesus and we're going to wipe out the Pharisees all at one time. We're going to ask about the resurrection. Because the resurrection is something that the Pharisees taught. It's something that Jesus had taught. And they said, we're going to bring him down because that resurrection thing is ridiculous. And so they're going to come and they're going to question Jesus. Now, does that sound like men coming with the heart seeking after wisdom? Or is that a heart of men coming to test Almighty God? Well, they come seeking and desiring to test. Now, the Sadducees only accepted the authority of the five books of Moses. They did not believe in anything spiritual, didn't believe in the resurrection. And you know what's amazing to me? These guys were the most wealthy and influential of all the Jews. Why? Because most of them held the highest positions in the temple. All that stuff that was, all that graft that was going on in the, in the uh, area of the Gentiles, guess who was getting all that money? The Sadducees. So they want to they dial Jesus down because he'd gone in and flipped the tables on them. And they're like, no, wait a minute, we've got to shut him up because, you know, this is ruining our gig here. You know, our giving's down. We're not going to be able to steal as much money from people. We've got to get after this guy. And you know what? Isn't it amazing to, you, to me? Can you imagine being a priest who didn't believe in life after death? What kind of job is that? You're making sacrifice for what? Why are you even bothering? There, if this is the only life. So guess what? The Sadducees said, well, since we don't believe in it, let's just use this as an opportunity to make as much money as we possibly can. And that's what these guys had done. They were wicked, they were vile, and they were corrupt. And with such disregard, this is what they, they felt, their heart, their desire was, let me see how much money we can make. Living for the here and now with no regard for future reward or judgment. 
Kind of like that song by John Lennon. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try, unless you're John Lennon right about now. Right? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Well, wrong answer. You can imagine all you want, but truth is the truth whether you believe it or not. Amen? If you don't believe in the truth, hey, I don't believe in gravity. You know, there's, there's physical laws or spiritual laws. A spiritual law is that there is a heaven, there is a hell, and there is judgment. And a physical law is there is gravity. And if, you, if one guy believes in gravity and another doesn't, and they both step off a 50-story building, how many of them fall? Both, the guy who doesn't believe in gravity isn't floating, okay? He's dropping like a stone and he's splatting on the sidewalk. You go, oh, I don't believe in gravity. Well, it doesn't matter because the truth is the truth whether you believe it or not. And the truth is the truth whether the Sadducees believe in the resurrection or not. The resurrection is true. Now, they, they come to Jesus again as an opportunity to discredit Him so that the, and the Pharisees at the same time. Look what they say in verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote to us, again, now who do they trust in? Mo, they like Mo, right? They like the five books, the Septuagint, the Mo, they like, they're Moses people, right? And they want to quote Moses. And they're not going to quote anybody else after Moses because it's only the first five books that count. So here's what they say again. Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now this was a, the law that they found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5-10. through 10. It's called the Leverite Law. And lever, lever in Latin means a husband's brother. The purpose of the custom, custom was to preserve a man's name should he die without any male heirs. In Israel, having an inheritance was a major, major thing. And it was important that each home had an heir. So it's considered a disgrace for a man to refuse to raise up a family for his dead brother. So since the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, basically because of what they perceived to be impossibilities. They thought, well, that doesn't make any sense to us, so it couldn't be true. If, if you follow the, the Levitical law, if you follow the law of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, there's no way the resurrection can be true and make sense, so we just don't believe in it. So what they're going to do is try to make the resurrection look ridiculous. So they come to him and say, now if a man has, you know, if a woman dies, or a man dies, and the, and the wife is left without children, and she goes and marries his brother according to the law of Moses. Now let's read on, verse 20. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. And the second took her, and he died, having no offspring. And the third likewise, so to seven, had her, and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. Now they think they've got the Lord tricked, right? They say, now see, if she's married seven times, then when she gets to heaven, you know, heaven, right? And when she gets to heaven, whose wife is she going to be then? They've all been married to her. And what would heaven be if, if seven guys had to share one wife? That would be kind of weak, right? I mean, this is the kind of question they're asking. They think they're going to discredit Jesus Christ in front of this crowd of people. And you know what? This is such a weak question. This is so weak. The wisdom of men is, is weaker than the foolishness of God. And you know what? The Bible says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Without the fear of God, there is no wisdom. These guys have zero wisdom. You know what? Albert Einstein had zero wisdom. Zero. People say, well, he was so intelligent. That has nothing to do with wisdom. Earthly physical intelligence has nothing to do with wisdom. He also used to get lost walking around the block from his house because he had no common sense. But the point I'm making is, if we base wisdom on intelligence, or how many letters somebody's got after their name, you know, PhD, which stands for piled high and deep, but you know, if, no matter how many letters you got behind your name, does not prove that you're wise. 
It may prove that you're educated in worldly things, but it doesn't mean that you're wise. And these guys thought they were educated. We wear the black robes, and we have the position, and everybody pays tithes to us, and we're so smart, and let's go trip up the creator of the universe. Well, I don't think it's going to work. What do you think? So they said, if the woman had been married, and she has said, what kind of heaven would this be? And many people today, let me clear something up and make it clear. Many people today believe that their lives in heaven will be much like their life on earth, only better. Let me tell you something. Your life in heaven is going to be nothing like your time on earth. Nothing. It's going to be so much better that no matter how good you think it's going to be, it's going to be way better than that. Amen? No more death, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. We're going to be in the... You know what? We're going to see Jesus. We're going to see Him. Does that blow your mind or not? You're going to see Him. I'm going to worship at His feet. I'm going to see, the Bible says, I'll be able to touch the nail print hands. I'm going to see Almighty God. Man, that's exciting to me. That's the most important thing. Man, I'm going to see Jesus? You're kidding. I'm going to be, He's preparing a mansion for, for me? Uh, well, wait a minute. He died for me. He paid the price for me. He did everything for me. Then He's going to give me? Well, that doesn't seem right. And then I'm going to get, the, and He's going to give me crowns? Wait a minute. Why is He giving me anything? I don't deserve anything. I deserve to be separated from God for all eternity. But heaven's going to be way better than anything you ever thought about. Now, some people say, oh, but you know, I want to be married to my spouse forever. You know what? You're going to be married in heaven, but not to your spouse. You're going to be the bride of Christ. Amen? When you get to heaven, you know what? Your husband is not going to be like the husband you've got right now. Now, guys, I know you love your wife, and you know, God bless you. And you know what? And my wife's saying amen, too, because I'm not the perfect man. But when you get to heaven... We're get, Christ is the groom, amen? Does it get any better than that? The answer is no. So look what they say. Look what the Lord says to them. And Jesus, look what He says. Let me see this. They take seven brothers. And Jesus answered and said to them, verse 24, Are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? Now again, Jesus just waters down His answers, doesn't He? I mean, He blasts them. He says, are you not deceived? That word could also be deceived. Again, that word could also be ignorant. So are you guys not ignoramuses? Are you, not, are you guys not, not mistaken? Are you guys not deceived because you don't know the Bible? Wait a minute, we're the Sadducees. We got the robe, look at the robe. What do you mean I don't know the Bible, right? I got, look, at my, look at my stuff. I, got the, I sit in the highest seat in the temple. What do you mean I don't know? And Jesus said, you guys don't know the Bible or the power of God. What? You know what? We see the same thing going on in the world today where people will look at the robes that they have on and think that that makes them an authority over people. You know what? There's only one authority over people and it's Jesus Christ. Amen? You know, pastor means servant. I've told you that before. I'll tell you again. My job is not to be in charge. My job is to serve. Jesus Christ is the head of Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz, not Dave Johnston. Jesus Christ is the head. And I'm here to serve you guys, to lay down my life for you guys, and to love you guys, and I cannot tell you what an absolute privilege that is. I, can know, I know no greater calling in the world than doing what I'm doing. To me, I have to pinch myself, and I am so blessed that God lets me get up and teach the Bible, and anybody shows up. I'm thankful. You know why? Because it's such an awesome and eternal thing. And it reminds the Sadducees by telling them they were ignorant. They didn't know the Scripture. The Sadducees posed as men of superior intelligence and knowledge, as opposed to, to the Pharisees and rabbinical traditions. And yet, the very point, they were ignorant of the Scriptures. Again, the number one problem in the church today is the same problem that the Sadducees had. And the, war, the problem is biblical illiteracy. 
There are a lot of churches in town where nobody brings a Bible. A lot of churches in the world where nobody brings a Bible. You know, if you don't have a Bible, I'll give you a Bible. Okay, please, I want you to have a Bible. Why? Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Not the teaching of men, not, the, not the, the power of men, not the intellect of men, not the PowerPoint presentation, not the seven keys to joy. It comes from the Word of God. And you know what? The Sadducees didn't know the Word. They should have. And you know what? Most Christians today do not, well, Christians, I'll put in quotes, do not know the Word today. The Sadducees' faith was based on the Mosaic Law, but they didn't even know what it says. How many people today call themselves Christians, but never, ever read the Bible? They know more about the stats of the baseball player on their favorite team than they know about Jesus Christ. I've been guilty of that in my lifetime, so I'm not pointing at you, I'm pointing with you. All right? They know more about what's going on in the stock market than they know about the Word of God. You know, the, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, the Bible says. Amen? If my treasure's in my 401k, that's where my heart's going to be. If my treasure's in heaven... My heart's going to be in heaven. I'm going to be excited. Yeah, I know most of you guys think I'm crazy. I love, one of my favorite things to do is sit in my car at the Kmart parking lot and study the Bible for 10 hours. Everything, Man, you're crazy. But I love just hanging out with the Lord. It's such a privilege. And you know what? God gives me a discipline. I have to study the Bible every week because I'm teaching twice a week. And God knew that I needed discipline. So He said, I'm going to make you a pastor. You need discipline. So I'm in the Word all the time. And you know what? I'm no more spiritual than you guys. Maybe I study the Bible more, but I have to. If I showed up and the Word isn't prepared, then I'd be in big trouble. So I make sure that doesn't happen. But again, it's an epidemic today, even among pastors, as the Word of God has been deemed by many as irrelevant to today. I was given a card. Most of you know I was a youth pastor for 15 years. Somebody gave me a card from a... From a organization that goes and meets on high school campuses. The guy gave me his business card, and right under his name it said, it's a sin to bore kids. And I said to him, wait a minute, are you trying to tell me the Bible's boring? Is that what you're trying to say? Well, you know, we've got we've to entertain kids. You know, we've got to give them something fun to do. You know, we've got to play chubby bunnies and build marshmallow towers. You know, that, that'll really impact their life, right? I mean, we, we've gotten so far away. And, I, you know, I tell you this. What you win people with is what you win people to. If you win them with entertainment, you're going to win them to entertainment. If you win them with sermonettes, you're going to have a bunch of Christianettes. You know what I mean? If you win them with, with something other than the Word of God, then that's what you're going to win them to. And when that stops, they're all going to leave. And I'd rather have ten people in a church on fire for God than entertain a thousand with the world. With the world, you have people who just can't get enough of the Bible. And you know what? This guy came to our youth group in San Jose because our youth group was maybe the biggest youth group in San Jose at the time. Hundreds of kids coming, and it blew his mind that I taught the Bible for an hour and teenagers were taking notes and couldn't get enough of God's word. Because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And teenagers can fall in love with Jesus too. Amen. And you know what? We don't need to say it's a sin to bore kids. It's irrelevant to today. No, it's not irrelevant. It's not entertaining enough for this microwave, MTV, internet generation. You know, let's preach psychology. Instead of teaching the whole counsel of God, and instead of equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry, let's minister to their felt needs. Let's send out a survey. What's your biggest struggle this month? I'm going to preach on that. What is it? Oh, I'm struggling with my finances. Great. We're going to get some CPAs in here. We're going to get your finances straightened out. You know what? If I had all the money in the world, if I don't have Jesus Christ, I got nothing. Amen? So we need to study and to teach the Word of God. He said, you don't know the Word of God. And he says, nor the power of God. You know, if they had known the Word of God, they would have known the power of God. You know, we limit God because we don't know God. Amen? All things, I can do all things things through Christ who strengthens me. 
What does all mean? It means all. It doesn't say I can do some things. I can do all things. Can God cure people of cancer? Absolutely. But we pray and we're blown away when God does it. Right? I'll never forget a lady came into church in, down in Southern California and she had head to toe cancer and they gave her like 72 hours to live. She was all weak. We prayed for her. The next week she came walking into church. And I was like, whoa. And she said, oh yeah, I went to the doctor. Cancer's gone. And I was like, really? You know? And I wait a minute. She's like, well, well, didn't you pray for that? Well, yeah, but he answered it. You know what I mean? And we shouldn't be that way. We need to know the power of God. Amen? Stop. Don't quit praying for your friend who doesn't know God. Don't stop praying for the person down the street and you think, that guy will never come to know Christ. Some people in this room did not know God when I started praying for you, and now you're here. So that's proof that God answers prayer. Amen? So God does answer prayer, and God is faithful. You know what? The power of God. What did God do? He created the light. He created the stars. He created the sea and the dry land. He had the power to create man from the dust of the ground. He parted the Red Sea. He rained manna from the sky to feed those who were following Him. He plagued Egypt. He delivered Noah. He spoke to Moses from a burning bush. And every single one of those things is just from the five books of the Bible that the Sadducees said that they believed in. Everything I just told you were in the books that these guys said they believed in. Parting of the Red Sea, it's in there. Creation, that's the first chapter. Read the book, start at the beginning. What do you see? The power of God. He says, you guys don't get it. You don't know the power of God. You know, why do we back down at work? Why do we wimp out when we share our faith? Because we do not know and fully understand the power of God. Had they understood the Word of God, they would have known the power of God and would have had no problem in believing in the resurrection, but instead to them it just seemed, oh, that couldn't possibly happen. Now look what the Lord's response is. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So when you get to heaven, I'm going to know my wife in heaven, but she's not going to be my wife in heaven. You know, God created marriage on earth because man and woman were incomplete. And when we come together, God put us together so we complete one another. And I understand if you're a little disappointed, and I would hope that you are a little disappointed in some ways. I'd be like, oh, great. Well, phew, you know, that'll be great. No, I don't want you to, you know, I hope you're a little like, oh, man, really? I won't be married in heaven. No, you won't be married in heaven. But you're going to know each other in heaven because we're not going to be procreating in heaven. Amen? We're not going to have any more kids in heaven. And I, like I said before, Jesus Christ is the groom. And He's the perfect groom. There will be no marriage among believers. Again, as we are the, and as believers in heaven, we will experience a whole new existence in which we will dwell in the very presence of Almighty God and we will have the perfect spiritual relationship with everyone. And when He says like the angels, He means spiritually eternal beings dwelling in God's presence forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Amen? I can't wait for that. That's going to be so good. Life is but a vapor on earth, and we're so consumed with the time. You know, we're fighting over deck chairs in the Titanic, right? The ship is sinking. We need to get off the boat. You know, let's quit fighting over the stuff that's perishing and doesn't matter. Verse 26. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses? Don't you love the Lord? Who, what does he say to these guys? Haven't you guys read the book of Moses? Now, what did they say that they were the authorities on? Book of Moses. He didn't quote from Elijah. He didn't quote from Jacob. He went right to their text. Well, what, is your, well, what does it say in your Bible? What does it say in the book of Moses that you guys say that your authority's on? What does it say? In the burning bush passage, which by the way, wouldn't that have been the power of God? Wouldn't that have been something miraculous that would think you think, oh, God's got some power? Because a, a bush is burning and speaking. It takes power of God to make that happen. Amen? So the bush is burning and it's speaking. 
And he says, in that passage, what did God say? God spoke to him when he appeared to Moses in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of, the God, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but a God of the living. Therefore, you are greatly ignorant. You are greatly mistaken. You are greatly deceived. You guys don't get it. And you know what? Powerful. What did the Lord say? I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not a God. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. He's dead now. I was the God of Isaac. Oh, he died a long time ago too. And I was the God of Jacob. He doesn't say that. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus reminds them of Exodus 3.6 and, and quotes that to them. Now the Sadducees' understanding of death was that people were extinct. That God created... But here's the thing, you guys. I want to make sure you, you hear this tonight. God created every one of us as a three-part being. Mind, soul, and spirit. And only one part of you is eternal. Your spirit. Okay? If you do not know God... The Bible says that those who do not know God are spiritually dead. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, and they need to be born again. But when you're born again, you are made spiritually alive. And that's the part of us that will continue to exist in heaven. Only our spirit is eternal. All human beings will live forever. Here's a word that you won't hear in a lot of churches. Hell. It's a real place. Do you know that Jesus talks more about hell than He talks about heaven in the Bible? Did you know that? You know what? I had somebody, I have a track, these chick tracks, and one of them says, uh, I forget the name of the track, but it's pretty heavy, and it shows the guy, and he, you know, he goes and stands before God, and he gets cast in the lake of fire, and I gave it to a friend of mine, and he calls me on the phone in the middle of the night, man, sweating like crazy, going, man, this thing scared the hell out of me, literally. It scared the hell out of me, right? I mean, I don't want to go there, you know what I mean? I mean, he was scared to death. And you know what? We need to preach Jesus Christ, Him crucified and risen from the dead. We need to preach grace, but we need to let people know that there is punishment for those who reject God. And how can a loving God send anybody to hell? Let me tell you something. Only people that go to hell are people that choose to go there. They say to Jesus, I don't want you. I don't need you. Oh, you know, the Lord loves you. I don't care. i got my own life. I'm on the throne. Well, you know, man, God loves you. He suffered and died for you. You know, I love you this much. I don't care how much you love me. I want the throne of my own life. I make my own decisions. And then one day, when we stand before Almighty God, He's going to give those people exactly what they've been asking for for their entire lifetime. I don't want anything to do with you, God. I want to make my own choices. And now they're going to get the, the consequences of their choice. So we will spend eternity in hell or eternity in heaven. Heaven is a place of perfect, eternal presence with Almighty God. Hell is a place of eternal torment and separation from God. You remove the eternal aspect uh, which, which the Sadducees believed in, and you know what man becomes? An animal. And you know what that's what we teach our kids in school? That they're just a bunch of animals. And then we wonder why they act like it. Right? We wonder why we abort babies. Well, they're just animals anyway. It doesn't matter. We wonder why there's crime streets. We wonder why, pe we wonder why people worship Satan. We wonder why people are flying into the World Trade Center because they think they're a bunch of animals and they don't see beyond today. And that's the problem that's going on in the world today. Let me finish up. Verse 28. Then one of the scribes came and having heard him, them reasoning together, perceived that he had answered them well and answered him, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Now, we go from the Sadducees, and finally we're now at a scribe. The scribes are the transcribers of the Word of God. If anybody should know the Bible, it's these guys. And you know what? These guys, it's incredible to me, we go from a political question about taxes to a doctrinal question about the resurrection to an ethical question about the law. And a third group comes in, and here they are. And here's what they say. The lawyer, 
And that's what it says about him in Matthew 23, that he's a lawyer. And the lawyer comes to the Lord and says, which of the commandments is the greatest commandment of all? Now, did you know that the scribes believed that there were 613 commandments in the Old Testament? They had 248 positive ones, things that you must do, 365 negative ones, things that you must not do. And, and basically, you know how they came up with this number? One for each letter of every word in the Ten Commandments. Okay? Well, Ten Commandments isn't enough. Let me tell you something. Ten Commandments is plenty. It shows to you you're a sinner. Amen? It reveals to you you're a sinner. The law is a taskmaster that drives us to the cross. We talked about this before. You know, how many of you guys in this room are sinners? Raise your hand. If your hand's not up, you're lying, so you're a sinner again, okay? Right? <laughs> lying is a sin. So we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Bible says. And since we are sinners, we are in need of a Savior. And what happened was, all these, these scribes would get together and they would argue amongst one another. Which one of these is the greatest commandment? You know what it says in James 2.10? Whoever shall keep the law and yet stumble in one point is guilty of all of it. If you've told one lie, you're guilty of murder. If you've told one lie, you're guilty of adultery. If you've stolen one thing, you're guilty of it all. And guilt is not so that we'll walk around, oh, I'm guilty, oh, bummer. No, guilt is there so that we will see that, man, I'm imperfect and I need a Savior. Matthew 1, says, And they were astonished at His teaching, for He taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. This is a scribe. Guess what? The scribes taught with no authority. You know why they didn't have any authority? Because they didn't know God. You know, doesn't it blow your mind? I've been to plenty of churches where it's painful. Maybe you're, maybe you're thinking the same thing about tonight, but I've been to plenty of churches where it's painful because there's no power in the, in the teaching that's being taught. Better get that, bro. So, it's all right. Don't worry about it. It's okay. But the point I'm making is that there are people that go to church and you go in there and after five minutes you're like, oh, this is no good. Why? Because there's no authority in the teaching. Because they're not teaching the Word of God, they're teaching the opinions of men. I, man, I might as well go down to West Valley and take a class. Then go to church. Because I want to hear the authoritative Word of God being taught. That's why faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Teach the Bible. Amen? And he said, he said that Jesus taught with authority, not like these guys. And this is one of them. Not like the scribes. Because they taught based on the teachings of other rabbis. Jesus taught direct, personal, and forceful teaching that was so foreign to their experience, all who heard Him were blown away. Now, they're hoping that He'll settle the controversy. Which is the greatest? We've got 613 commandments. We've been arguing about this for hundreds of years. Which one's the top commandment, Lord? You know, tell me which one it is. Because whichever one you say, you're going to have people for you and people against you. Look at what the Lord said. Jesus answered and said, The first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You know what I love about this? The Orthodox Jews in those days began, this is out of Deuteronomy 6, 4, and it's called the Shema. And it was a statement of faith that was recited every single day by the Orthodox Jews. And then what they said, this is Deuteronomy 6, 4, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Does the Lord know His audience? The answer is yes. He speaks directly to the scribe and says, you know that thing you say every single morning? Not only that, they had these things called phylacteries. Everybody, how many of you ever heard of a phylactery before? A phylactery was a thing where they would, they would tie a some tw- you know, leather piece around there and they had a little box on their wrist and they would write Scripture and put it in the box. They would also write Scripture and put it on their forehead and they would tie it in the back and it was so that they would a- always have Scripture on their mind and on their hands, right? And literally, they walked around with Scripture and one of the Scriptures that they wrote in there was Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And the Orthodox Jews wrote it out and put it in their in their phylacteries and fastened it also to the front doorsteps of their home. So Jesus knew that even in their hearts, this was the greatest commandment. Look at verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, and the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, there shall, and there is no commandment greater than these. 1 John 4.20 says this, If a man says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? I shared with you guys my six-word philosophy of ministry. Preach the Word, love the people. You know what? That's what this is about. Love God, love people. And you know what? If you don't love God, you won't be able to love people. People will get on your nerves all the time if you don't love God. Because people, people, I wouldn't use that word, but people are no bueno sometimes. So people do things that are wrong. And you know what? That's also why you're not going to find the perfect church. You know why you're not going to find the perfect church? Because they all got people in them. Amen? And you go to church, and as soon as you get there, if you're the first person, it's already messed up, right? I mean, so as soon as people show up, the church is not going to be perfect because people are going, oh, did you see what he said? That's why we got to fall in love with the Lord. Because if we fall in love with God, we'll be able to love people. The, the scribe responds to Jesus' words. Verse 32, we're almost done, I promise. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth. For there is one God, and there is no other but He. And to love Him with all your heart, with all the understanding, with all your soul, with all your strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And amen to that. The scribe actually says something very profound. If you want to know the meaning of the law and the prophets, the message of the law and prophets, it really can be summed up in one word, and that word is love. Galatians 5.22 says the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. And then it goes on to describe it, which is joy, peace, kindness, long-suffering, right? Faithfulness, goodness, self-control. So the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. If someone says they have a relationship with God and they have not love, they have no relationship with God. Again, I, I don't mean to harp on them, but they need to be harped on. The Muslims, they have 99 traits to their God. Do you know that none of them is love? None of them. Muhammad was called the prophet of the sword come to your throat, stick a sword in your throat and say, you confess that Muhammad is a prophet and Allah is God or we're slitting your throat. Well, I have a lot of converts, right? I mean, people, oh, okay, well, yeah, Muhammad's God, okay, whatever, just don't kill me, just don't slit my throat. And you know what? The reality is that that is not our God, a God of hate, a God of destruction, a God of terror. He's a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy. Amen? That's who our God is. And on these two things hang all the law and the prophets. If we love God which direction do we love God? Like this, right? Amen? If we're loving God this way, and we're loving people this way, what is that? It's a picture of the cross. Amen? It's a picture of we love God vertically, and we love people horizontally, and it's a picture of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Man, I love that. And Jesus, who loved, think about Jesus Christ who hung on the cross. Who did He love? He loved His Father above all else, and He loved us enough that He would die for us. That's a picture of the cross. It's not about religion. It's not about rituals. It's all about loving God above all else, about being a conduit for His love to pour it out on others. 1 Samuel 5, 15, 22 says, To obey is better than sacrifice. People who profess to worship God brought offerings and sacrifices to God. But it is not professing to worship God that is important. It's not, saying, it's not even saying, I love God. You know, saying I love God is a good thing. But do you know that that's not what's really the most important thing? The most important thing is to love God a love for God that leads to repentance, obedience, and a love for others. Such love makes our worship acceptable to Him. Our you know what? How many of you guys heard that song by Stephen Curtis Chapman? What about the change, right? 
He talks about, you know, I've got the bumper stickers, I've got this, I've got that, but what about the change in my life? And as Christians, we should be different. Amen? If you've been working somewhere for a month and nobody knows you're saved, that's not good. Amen? If they can't figure it out just by the way you live, by the way you talk, by the things that you do, they should go, man, what is different about that person? Because we are alive in Christ. They're dead in their trespasses and sins, and we've been made alive in Christ. So in summation, verse 34 says this. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, that's the, the wise men, or the scribe, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You know what? This man came testing Jesus, but then when he heard Jesus' words, he responded upon hearing them, and he confessed that Jesus' words indeed were truth, because it wasn't about the rules, it wasn't about the religion. And while the scribe had confessed truth of one God and loving Him as being the key to knowing God, he still needed something else. Let me read this to you in closing. Worship team, come on up. Romans chapter 10, verses 8 and 9 says this. But what does it say? The Word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. I believe, what what did He just say to this man? You are near the kingdom of God. The Word is near you. You're confessing the truth. The Word is near you. But look what He says next. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not good enough to believe in God. Amen? It's not good enough to stand up and say, I love God. That's a good thing. But you know what? There's a lot of people that love God and they're not talking about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not talking about the God of the Bible. The point is, at some point, we have to believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Because without Him, Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by Me. You're not getting there by being good, because you can't be good enough. You're not getting there by being faithful. You're not getting there by going to church. You're not getting there by standing on a street corner telling people you love God. There needs to come a point where we are broken because of our sin and we confess Jesus Christ to be our Lord and Savior. So in summation, so we can close in a worship song. What questions were asked to Jesus? They questioned about His authority. And by the time He was done, they said, we don't know. He shared the parable of the vine dressers and He told them and they went away, it says. They asked him about taxes, and by the time they were done, they marveled, and they went away. He asked a doctrinal question about, they asked him a doctrinal question about the resurrection, and before he was done, he told them they didn't know the scripture or the power of God. There was an ethical question about the law, which is the greatest of all the commandments, and look what it says in verse 34, but after that, no one dared question him. Everybody came and questioned the Lord, and all walked away going, oh, Right? And they go, you know, we better stop questioning him because we're not getting anywhere. They need to come instead of questioning God with a repentant heart. Amen? And that's where we need to be. We need to be desperate for Jesus. Amen? We need to live lives desperate for him. Say, Lord, I need you in my life. When we start trusting in anything but him, that's when things fall apart. Let's pray and we're going to close the worship song. Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you, Lord, for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that the Father God, when the world comes with their questions, that you are always the answer. The Lord, the answer is not in man. The answer is not in worldly wisdom. The answer is not in power. The answer is not in our military. The answer is in you, Lord. And Father, I pray for each one of us tonight. I pray if there's anybody that came here tonight with a question on their heart. Lord, if there's anybody that came here tonight that has never confessed you as Lord and Savior, maybe they've known about you, Lord, but have never made that commitment. Lord, I pray that tonight would be the night when they would commit their lives to you. And real quickly, if you're here tonight, every head bowed, Christians be praying. If you're here tonight 
and you have never openly confessed, first of all, repented. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we're all sinners. You all raised your hands. We've taken care of that problem. But now with the sin problem, there needs to be a solution. And the solution is not you trying. The solution is Jesus' death on the cross. When he died, he said, I paid it all. And the Bible says in Romans 10:9, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. So if you're here and you just make that simple statement tonight, Lord, I confess that I'm a sinner and I need you as my Savior. You can walk out of here knowing that your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, that you've been born again and that you're going to heaven. If you're here tonight, every head's bowed, we're just praying for you. I just want you to raise your hand so I can pray with you. If there's anybody here tonight at all, and don't let the enemy tell you you don't need to do it, because if you haven't, you need to. Is there anybody here at all? Today's the day of salvation. No decision is a decision. Is there anybody here at all who wants to make that commitment to the Lord? Well, Lord, we do thank you and we praise you. And again, if there's anybody here tonight, the Lord out of fear or just has questions, I pray, Lord, that after the service is over, that they would come up and talk to somebody, Lord, to make sure that they walk out of here a new creation in Christ. And those of us who do know you, Lord, I pray, Lord, just for your strength, for the power and the filling of your Holy Spirit, that we would not be ashamed of you. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Why don't we stand and let's sing a worship song.